You're about to watch a great interview on TYT interviews. If you wanna watch them live, members are the only ones who get to do that. TYTnetwork.com slash join, become a member, enjoy the interviews as they happen. Welcome everyone, welcome to TYT interviews. I'm Anna Kasparian and I am honored to say that I'm about to interview a dean at UCLA. This is Dean and Professor Gary Segura from UCLA's Luskin School. And I'm super excited to talk to you. I love academia and I especially love being able to talk to people who have worked in that field for a long time. I think the conversation is definitely needed considering what we're hearing right now in the news in regard to free speech, speakers that go on to public campuses and whether or not some should be banned. And you know, you have this incredible history with education that I wanna share with the audience a little bit. Not only is Professor Segura a dean at UCLA, he has a pretty extensive background teaching at Stanford. In fact, you were faculty affiliate of African, African and African American studies, American studies, feminist gender and sexuality studies, Latin American studies and urban studies. And another little piece of amazing information is that you are the director of the Institute on the Politics of Inequality, Race and Ethnicity at Stanford. So I've been at the center of some of these questions for some time. For this is what my life's time. work is. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Stanford it, makes you do a lot of work. It does, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so I'm always curious to kind of get the perspective of experts such as yourself in regard to what's happening with today's political climate and some of the criticisms that are geared toward college campuses right now. Sure, Yeah. I think some of those criticisms are wildly misplaced, mm -hmm. honestly. I think that in the vast majority of university campuses on the vast majority of days, viewpoints from all sides of the political spectrum and from a variety of different social, political, economic and cultural vantage points are presented in a fair and meaningful manner in dialogue. And so mm -hmm. what we, we tend to focus on these moments of controversy where a particular speaker is protested or shut down. And I just want to recognize that that is by, by a large measure the exception, not the rule. And that's certainly true at UCLA. Right, that is true at UCLA. And I can speak from personal experience because I was invited to speak on a panel for an event called PolitiFest. And the other two people on the panel, they were both professors, came from, I wouldn't say a conservative perspective, but they were certainly not as left-leaning as I am. Mm -hmm. And the audience of students was, you know, basically pretty representative of the political spectrum, which I thought was great because it was a great civil conversation where people were sharing their different perspectives and you had you know, students that kind of felt pride getting their questions answered and their perspective represented in that panel. And so I do wanna talk a little bit about what happened this year at Berkeley, right? So you had a number of right-wing speakers like Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter trying to go to that campus and give speeches, they were protested, things did get um, rowdy to the point where their speech was shut down. What were your thoughts on that? What was your perspective on how everything just kind of transpired? Sure, so so the, the first thought I have is that we need to look at this in a much larger perspective. So mm -hmm. why was Milo scheduled to speak at, at Berkeley? Uh, why was Milo's tour across the country scheduled? Who promoted that? 
who funded Milo mm -hmm. uh, to be in those circumstances. That's not to forgive students who engage in provocative actions to try to shut down a, a, a public event, but it is to suggest that there are intentional efforts to put particularly incendiary speakers in environments to produce the sort of video that can then be used for ideological purposes at a later date. Um, so that's the first thing, that these events are not accidental, they're, they're, provo they're provoked on purpose, and they're done with consciousness and with planning and, 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 and with coordination. The second is that we have a special responsibility at a university that we don't have in other parts of the public forum. Mm -hmm. And that is that this is an educational environment. So it is true everywhere that my right to swing my elbow ends where your nose begins, right? That there's limits on our freedoms and including freedom of speech. So speech that is intentionally incendiary or insightful can be limited. You cannot yell fire in a crowded theater. In some of these instances, these speakers are being brought precisely to yell fire in a crowded theater. But at a university, we have an additional obligation and that obligation is to create an environment where students feel safe. Not in the snowflake derogatory way, mm -hmm. but in, in the notion that students need to be able to develop their ideas without fear that they're going to be subjected to some form of harassment or violence. And those events are all about provoking harassment and violence and they're staged for that matter. So I don't think they're representative of what's happening on college campuses. What do you believe the proper response should be by students who disagree with a particular speaker coming on campus and giving a speech? Do you think that the protests are justified or should a different approach be considered? I am absolutely in favor of students having the opportunity and the right to protest vociferously against a speaker who is coming to campus. They should do that outside of the venue as people are going in, as people are coming out and in response to the comments that the speaker says. I'm not a big fan of shutting down someone who's not engaged in insightful speech in the public forum. It's just not the democratic way. I absolutely agree with you. And I think it is important for all types of you know ideologies to be represented as long as it doesn't incite violence or harm anyone. Because it's a free marketplace of ideas, which is why even though I knew that someone like Ann Coulter was going to Berkeley specifically to get the attention that she so desperately craves, I think that it's important to allow her to do her thing and it's a little more effective to just, you know, let the two or three people who might want to listen to her speak go go watch her speak. Can right? I offer a slightly different perspective sure, as well? Sure. And that is that young people in the United States are overwhelmingly to the left of the political establishment. Mm -hmm. Every time one of these individuals goes onto a college campus and opens their mouths, they move young people further to the left. So what's, what you're seeing is an entire side of the political spectrum in a panic because they're already a minority position in American society. And if you, if you look at this by age, they're in the profound minority among the college educated youth. Mm -hmm. And so those college environments are particularly a source of concern and dread for them. And that's why they're engaged in this effort to try to provoke these responses. That's super interesting. Um, I was recently at Politicon and I was on a panel in regard to millennials and what their political ideology is and how to get the you know, millennial generation to side a little more with conservatives. Now, I mean, I don't really care about getting them to side with anyone. I think that they can think for themselves and make their own decisions. But in the process of that conversation, you know, um, the conservative panel members tried to make it seem as though millennials are actually 
more conservative than the generations before them. And they, they cited a study indicating that most millennials identify as pro-life. And so I thought that was really interesting and I looked into the data because if I'm wrong, I wanna know. I don't wanna go around spreading mistruths or half-truths. I looked into it and I realized, oh, well yeah, everyone considers themselves pro-life. These millennials said that they're pro-choice, but they're also pro-life, meaning they don't like abortions, but they want people to have reproductive rights and the ability to choose for themselves. And so I just think it's interesting how data also gets skewed in a way to fit certain political agendas as well. And I think you're right. I think that there are some conservatives that are just kind of like going through their last gasp of trying to convince young people to side with them. You have an incredible background in academia and you know, just reading about some of the stuff that you did at Stanford was not only inspiring, but it made me wonder what your thought process is today. You know, you have fought for you know social justice for such a long time, and I know personally, um, I've felt a lot of discouragement over this past election and some of the rhetoric that we're seeing in mm -hmm. public now. What are your thoughts on all of that? Well, that's a big question. It um, is. It's a broad question. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I, so I look at I look at the, the trajectory of my career, and I actually feel pretty confident about a few things, and pretty happy about a few things. I look at at, at uh, about eight years ago, one of the highlights of my career was testifying as an expert witness in the Proposition Eight trial. And if we'll recall, the Prop A trial was about a statewide ballot initiative in California, where the majority of the voters rejected same-sex marriage equality. And today. The polling numbers suggest that well over 60% of all Americans are in favor of marriage equality. That represents radical progress in just a very short period of time. So we ultimately went on to win those cases and we won at the Supreme Court. And in the end, marriage equality has come to all Americans, though even now we have states attempting to try to find ways to roll that back. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't believe that there's this inexorable march towards a, a more inclusive, more fair and more just society. But I do believe that we have been able to accomplish a great deal um, in the last 40 years and, and on things that I didn't really expect. I spent a significant portion of my of my academic life assuming that uh, same-sex couples will never be allowed to marry uh, it, you know we were we were discussing things like job protections back in the 1990s and, mm -hmm. and and staying alive because of the HIV epidemic and that we are two decades later uh, having uh, equality of marriage rights in all 50 states is something I don't think we would have ever imagined and we could think the same thing about immigration and some other issues immigration I think the story is is less cheerful. Yeah, I completely agree with you actually. And you know, when it comes to the issue of gay rights, um, I don't remember who it was exactly who made this point, but it really resonated with me. Sexuality doesn't discriminate against you know, a certain nationality or ethnicity or background. You know, there are gay people that have every background imaginable. And so if you are a conservative, Chances are, at some point, you're gonna come across someone that you love and care about who's gonna identify as gay or bisexual. And so that forces people to kind of understand you know, the other perspective. That's right. And, and it, that's a great thing. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to the issue of race, 
we still very much live in segregated neighborhoods, even in so-called you know liberal parts of the country, like California, Los Angeles. We're, we're very very much segregated, and a lot of it has to do with socioeconomic status. Um, and so people live in their own little bubbles, and I think that that unfortunately does let people hold on to whatever hatred, bigotry, or bias they have against others. How do we how do we mitigate that? Is there do you see any hope when it comes to that issue? Well, I do. I, I see some hope and I see some challenges. So for 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 folks in the LGBT community, it was always a double-edged sword. On the one hand, coming out had the opportunity to educate someone who was not a member of the community, and right. it, that occurred in all. All segments of society. On the other hand, gays and lesbians were the only minorities in America who were born to the enemy. You're by definition born to a heterosexual pairing, right? And so in most instances, LGBT children were raised in heterosexual homes and they weren't given the tools to cope with their status. As opposed to being an African American or Latino child, you're born into that household. Your parents can essentially educate you about what life is like in American society. Um, on the other hand, that proximity allowed LGBT youth to begin to educate their family and friends. And as you point out, social segregation and housing and employment and education makes that far more difficult mm -hmm. for people of color. I think the big challenge and something we understood 50 years ago and we still understand today is that segregation occurs in every aspect of American life. And many children are attending schools that were in, in some school districts more segregated today than they were in the 1960s mm -hmm. because of the the white flight from particular school systems because of the growth of the Hispanic population in certain parts of the country. It means that we have lots and lots of children of color going to schools that are 70, 80, in some cases 90% people of color. As long as we have that level of social segregation, it's gonna be very difficult for proximity to overcome. And the one solution to that is representation in the media. But there again, you know, as recently as two years ago, before Jane the Virgin mm -hmm. appeared, there was not a single broad scripted television show on any network in which a Hispanic was the primary character. Yeah, yeah. By the way, Jane the Virgin is a great show. You guys should all check it out <laughs> if you're not already. Um, you're you're absolutely right about that. The portrayal in the media is important, but there's also you know a need for accurate representation in our education system, mm -hmm. and I think you know. Affirmative action attempted to mitigate that. Mm -hmm. And right now we have the Department of Justice trying to do away mm -hmm. with the policy of affirmative action. Some universities still implement it. And I want to get your thoughts on that. I believe UCLA stopped implementing affirmative action, correct? But under state law as a consequence of Proposition 209, right. affirmative action in education and employment in terms of admissions was formally ended by the state in 1996. We still practice efforts at diversification, at inclusion, at equitable hiring practices. And so our goals of equitable inclusion continue to exist, but there are certain practices that were in fact outlawed in 1996. I think that there is this misconception by some in the country in regard to what affirmative action is and what it accomplishes. I think that there's this thought that you know, affirmative action just lets people of color get accepted into prestigious universities without having the academics to back it up. Sure. Um, tell me what your experience with affirmative action is. What, what's the reality of it? Yeah. 
Yeah, the reality is very, very different from that. It was never the case. There's the there's the whole sort of mythology, the anti-affirmative action mythology, that a highly qualified white student is excluded mm -hmm. so that a profoundly underqualified student of color could be somehow or another admitted. And the same would be true in contracting, employment, et cetera. That was never the case. Mm -hmm. What was the case was trying to understand in a, a more holistic admissions process what students are capable of and what students life experiences bring to the university campus. If you look at the students that were admitted both under affirmative action and since, the students of color who are admitted to the University of California are some of the most competitive outstanding students in the country. They're competitive in every environment, okay? What affirmative action does is says after we get to the point where we're we're pretty undecided, where we're we have a group of students that are hard to differentiate, mm. students who have demonstrated some sort of exceptional capacity in their life. And in some instances, that exceptional capacity is playing the trombone. But in other instances, that exceptional capacity is having to overcome tremendous adversity, underfunded public schools in order to find themselves in an admissible process. You give the opportunity to that person who's overcome that 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 obstacle. You know, one of the really interesting things was, and the, the most famous affirmative action case was the, the undergraduate case at the University of Michigan. In the Michigan point system, they gave points for legacies and they mm -hmm. gave points for children born in the Upper Peninsula. Well, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan is nearly all white. And because the University of Michigan was for many years segregated, de facto, if not de jure, then all the legacy admits had to be white. So they actually had an affirmative action program for white students at the University of Michigan, and that's not what was challenged. Yes, okay, I love that you brought that up because I think that this debate is just a symptom of what we're seeing on, on a national scale with every political issue. Mm -hmm. So I, I see affirmative action as another way of distracting people to attack those that are less powerful that are usually in you know underprivileged situations instead of looking at a system that clearly needs to be reformed right That's so right. legacy admissions think about that for a second your your papa went to this university and maybe donated some money to this university so as a result you have an easier time getting into the school no one ever challenges that no one ever criticizes that but you know the notion of considering someone's underprivileged background as a potential way to differentiate them among other competitive candidates, that's something that people are upset about. And I don't think it's because you know they know what affirmative action really is mm -hmm. and they're upset about it. I think it's because of the way affirmative action is portrayed in opinionated media. Sure, and remember of course that individuals can be prejudiced, but racism is written into structure. Mm -hmm. After 209 passed in, in 1996, we looked at the admissions process at UC Berkeley. And at that time they switched to a pure meritocracy. And one of the measures in that pure meritocracy was AP courses. Mm -hmm. At the time that that policy came into effect, 78% of all students of color in the state of California went to high schools such that if they took every AP course available at that high school, they were still categorically not eligible for admission. Wow. That is structural racism. It has nothing to do with merit. Yeah, and another 
what I would consider a structural racism that a lot of people might not even be aware about is how public education gets funded. Sure. Now I know the LAUSD has changed things to make funding more equitable among different districts, not districts, different parts of the county regardless of property values. But a lot of school districts throughout the country are funded primarily through property taxes. That's and correct. so if a school is located in an underprivileged neighborhood where property values aren't high, that school isn't going to get as much funding as a wealthier area. That's right. Crossing district lines is where you get really big differences. But mm -hmm. it's important to remember that school districts are artificial. School districts are created by the state and it is the state that bears the responsibility, all 50 of them, to educate the population. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing special about having a school district line that separates the wealthy suburb from the less wealthy city. And that could be changed. The state right. could change that anytime they wanted to, to equalize that funding structure. Well, I mean, also there are property owners that don't want their tax money to go toward, you know, the others. You, you, you see right. that kind of debate playing out and it's really unfortunate because, you know, I, I feel like this country used to be a little more about you know, being collectionists, working together, looking out for your fellow American, and and things have now become very individualistic, where people want to hoard everything for themselves and their families instead of looking out for one another. And I think it's important to change that mentality because you you can build moats around your mansions as much as you want, but we all live in the society together. And if we're all thriving, we're all gonna be much happier. Okay. At least that's my perspective on that. Um, okay, unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I do wanna get your uh, thoughts on the future. Now, things seem to be pretty bad right now um, with what just happened in Charlottesville, the hate yes. rally. Uh, Trump just gave a speech uh, during an Arizona rally where he again justified some of the violence that, mm -hmm. that occurred, or at least it seems like he's equating both sides, which is ridiculous. But is there hope for the future? I mean, I'm a little pessimistic, but maybe you have some optimism you can share with me in the audience. Uh, you might have come to the wrong quarter for optimism. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a behavioral psychologist. If I was a clinical psychologist, I might say that the President of the United States is dangerously unhinged narcissist who shouldn't have control of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. um, but because I'm not a behavioral psychologist, I, I'm not in the position to make such a diagnosis. I am in the position to say that as long as the Trump administration continues, we're gonna have a very divisive period of time in American politics. Yeah. And I don't, think, I don't see anything uh, a way around that. I will say the most encouraging thing was the reaction one week after Charlottesville in Boston, where the number of protesters against racism, against fascism, against division outnumbered the actual attendees at the rally about 10,000 to one. That was actually quite stirring. And I think that at their heart, not all, but many of the American people are decent, equitable, fair, and inclusive, and want a society in which everyone has a chance to succeed. Well, you gave me a little bit of optimism, so thank you for that. All right, guys, thank you so much for watching. Please check out some of the work that Gary Segura has done. Thank you for the work that you've done. I really appreciate it, and thank you for this awesome conversation. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. If you like the interview that you just watched, I got great news for you. If you become a Young Turks member, you can watch them live as they happen. Only the members get that. You also get Young Turks live. You also get Aggressive Progressive live and Old School live. Everything is available for the members and commercial free. tytnetwork.com slash join.